Well, if you take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 19. Psalm 19, we often see this psalm in the pages and lectures of systematic theology. And while we do see several deep theological doctrines, which we will cover within its poetic structure, it also serves mankind with a pattern of transformation that cannot be overlooked. I trust it will be a blessing as we are once again in Psalm 19. I didn't know. Some have attempted to use this argument when faced with a law or a rule that they just broke. When caught in a transgression, they claim that since they were ignorant of the speed limit or the tax code or regulations on financial records or, yes, even how eating a cookie before dinner was prohibited, uh, they think that ignorance should free them from some sort of responsibility. Basically, because they didn't know, they think they should get a free pass. The only problem is that claiming ignorance doesn't absolve a person from responsibility. Your ignorance, whether mistaken or intentional, does not excuse or remove, first, the reality of the speed limit or the rule, or secondly, your responsibility to obey it. And what's interesting to me is that these excuses are used both in relatively small infractions, like I said before, a cookie before dinner, although children don't eat a cookie before dinner. But also the sad thing is that some of the biggest infractions likewise have some who seek to excuse their behavior or their belief system using the ignorance defense. Now I'm thinking specifically of mankind looking at God and declaring that they didn't know either that God existed or his rules, his regulations didn't exist, and that, that ignorance frees them from any right by God to call them into account for their actions or perhaps their process of living. And just like ignorance of a speed limit doesn't absolve a person from responsibility, so too claimed ignorance about God is likewise a futile argument. Why? Because God has revealed himself to us. He has made his person and his work known. And our passage is one of the most clear testimonies of that fact. And as Romans chapter 1 states, man is without excuse. You may ask, how did God reveal himself to us? Well, I'm glad you did ask. And we're going to let God answer that question from our passage this evening. And we must understand that since God has revealed himself to us as man, we must respond to that revelation. And lest we wonder what that response looks like, thankfully, our passage, too, provides a proper pattern for the response to God's revelation to us. Again, Psalm 19, some of these verses you probably have even memorized. But it's always good to go back and to be reminded that God's revelation is definitive. He has made himself known to mankind. And you may ask, where does that say that? Well, verses 1 through 11, we'll walk through that. We'll break it down a little bit further because there's, a, there's two ways that God has revealed himself to mankind. And first off, we see in verses 1 through 6 that God has revealed himself generally to all people at all times. Let's pick up in Psalm chapter 19. 
verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line is gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from the end of heaven, and his circuit unto the ends of it, and there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. So God has first off revealed himself generally to all people at all times. Through, specifically, verse 1, the creation of this world. Verses 1 through 4 walk through what this creation looks like. Again, the heavens declare the glory of God. They are declaring. They're in the process of declaring. They tell and they talk and they speak about the glory of our God. Have you ever seen a snow-capped mountain and it almost takes your breath away? Have you ever also studied, uh, gone to maybe a planetarium and you've sat maybe in those super comfortable chairs and you fought sleep because it's so nice, but you look up into uh, a representation of the firmament, a representation of the stars, and if you ever want to feel small, just sit there for a, a, a length of time because you start seeing and you keep seeing and you keep seeing and they, they zoom in and they zoom in and as they zoom in, there's still more and there's still more and we, we seem so small. But all the way through that, what is that creation doing? It is declaring the glory, the majesty, the power of our God. He is our creator. And they are a constant proof of God's abilities and actions. What else is true? Verse 2. They are universally declaring God's creative power. Verse 2 says, Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. It continues over and over and over again. It's a constant proof. If you ever wonder, did God create this whole thing, you can look and you can see just the, 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 the design that he put into the world. I can't help but think about the eyeball. Have you ever studied the eye and how intricate it is and how even scientists have tried and tried to mimic the lens, even with people who have not the greatest eyesight, they still cannot mimic how, how clear and the colors and how the eyeball works. And something like that declares the ability of our God, and it happens day unto day, night unto night. It happens constantly. And he, he, what else does it say? Verse 3 and verse 4, There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line is gone out through the, all, the, all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun. What is that saying? That it is, it is universal. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that mankind has always responded well to that. In fact, I was talking to someone just earlier this afternoon and I mentioned that we were going to be in Psalm 19. And this person brought up the fact of, isn't it weird or crazy how, and sad how man will take what is in front of them and instead of cre uh, worshiping the creator, they instead worship the creation? 
And can I say, the creation is so amazing that sometimes people just forego the one who made it and they just start worshiping the creation. And that's a sad reality. Each one of us are created as worshipers and we should be worshiping the one who made everything. They are declaring, universally declaring God's creative power with no exception. The rocks are crying out, if you have time to listen and look, that God is our creator. But not only is he our creator, he also is our ruler. Look at the end of verse 4. It says, in them, so after he talks about the line going out through all the ends of the earth, their words to the end of the world, then he says, in them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun. And now he starts breaking that down. Verse 5, which is as a, bri- a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from the end of heaven and his circuit to the ends of it. And there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. The psalmist turns his attention to what the sun does in a given day. And I would say that it is an indication that not only is God our creator, but God is our ruler. That, that circuit that the sun takes and makes every single day, sunrise, sunset, and where it goes, is all under the guiding hand of God, our creator. The sovereign power of God is clearly seen. God has engineered the processes of nature, and he holds them in existence. He never sets his sovereignty aside. Can I say this is a direct blow to a deist view that the world is like a top that God spins and then just stands back and lets it go. No, God is holding all of this life together. Each moment, each sunrise, each sunset, yes, even each heartbeat. As Acts chapter 17 talks about that in him we live and we move and we have our being. So God has revealed himself generally to all people at all time because he is the creator of the world and he is the sustainer or the ruler of that world as well. Now this is hard for a sinful man to accept. Why? Because if God is my maker, then he is keeping me alive. And by him, all things consist. Then I answer to him for how I live. Watch mankind squirm when you tell them that they are accountable to the one who creates them. The creation, though mired by sin, is currently declaring to all of us that God has made us. And he, and, and he is going to keep it going by his power. He is our ruler. Now I will say at the end of the day, whether man accepts that fact or not matters little. The reality is we cannot deny that God has revealed himself to us. He's made himself known. But this is not the end of his revelation to man. And as great as creation is, can I say, it is deficient to tell us how to be in relationship with our God. We know he's our creator. We know he's our sustainer. But did you know that God wants to have fellowship with you? The one who made us, the one who fashioned us, for some odd reason, wants to know each and every one of us. We know maybe he exists, but he didn't just introduce himself to us in creation. He also has invited us personally to get to know him. 
And in order for that to happen, creation wasn't going to be enough. And so, as you probably know where we're going to go next, not only has God revealed himself generally to all people at all times, but now God has revealed himself explicitly through a written declaration of who he is. And that is in his word. A lot of people go to Psalm 19, and it is a beautiful section, verses 7 through 11, that, that talk about the word of God and what we have in our hands when we have God's word. It walks through and talks about the law. It talks about the, the testimony, the statutes, the commandments, the fear. It walks through all of those things, but really at the end of the day, it all has to do with the, the special revelation that God has given to us, the word. And the law of the Lord is, and the law of the Lord does. Well, what does the law of the, what is the law of the Lord? Let's put it that, let's start there. Well, the law of the Lord is, look at verse 7. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect. What does that word perfect mean? Well, the, the word perfect means without flaw. You have, if you have your Bible open, you have the pages of Scripture that are without flaw. You can trust in it and you can rest in it. By extension, continue on. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Then the testimony of the Lord is sure. What else is true? Not only is the law perfect, but it also is sure. And what does that word sure mean? It means the, it has the idea of being firm or verified. Uh, people have railed against God's word for generations. People have tried to dispu- dis- disprove God's word over and over again. And what's fascinating to me, and I kind of chuckle a little bit, is when God again proves that God's word is true, sure, and verifiable. It's been verified. You can see it. So the word of God is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. That idea of right has the idea of righteous or straight. Have you ever tried to measure something and maybe you got off just a little bit at the beginning? And it doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal. I mean, you know, what's a, what's a sixteenth of an inch between friends, right? Well, then you start, as it goes further down the wall, you start noticing that unless you got that right on, then it starts getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then by the end, you're, you're sitting there and everything's crooked and you're wondering what you did wrong or what I think of that. What did I do wrong? And you have to go back to the beginning and you have to realize, did I have the right standard or did I have the right beginning? And this idea of right has the idea of righteous or straight. If you're going to follow God's word, you will follow the right path. It is righteous. It is straight. So it's right. What else is true? The commandments, verse 8, the commandment of the Lord is pure. And that idea of purity has a picture of a, a, a blacksmith who would seek to try to get a pure piece of metal and shape it and form it. And in order to do that, they have to heat it, and then they have to beat it, and they have to remove any of the, 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 uh, the 
things that would make it weak. And so it is, it is removed. It's like, it's like silver that's tried and free from corruption. So the law or the, the, the testimony or the, the scripture is pure like, like silver. What else is true? The law of the Lord is clean. Clean. What does that have to do with? Well, it's devoid of all contaminants. This is similar to pure, but it's without contaminants. There's nothing that is, uh, that is untoward about it. It is clean. Not only is it clean, but then also, lastly, it is true. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And that idea of true from verse 9 has the idea of dependability. You can always go to God's word if you ever need or if you ever have a question. One of the things that I love about scripture is that it is sufficient. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Talk about how the word of God is able to teach us what is right, what is wrong, how to make it right, and how to keep it right. You can always trust in the word of God. I think about our life, and as we live our life, we have to live, or we seek to live, with the idea of truth being sought. Have you ever thought about that? If, if things are being told to us that are not true, can I say, it throws things off completely. And we never are able to really come to a foundation and be able to live our life if truth is not declared. And so we have in God's word a dependable testimony, a dependable revelation of who our God is. So the law of the Lord, again, is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. But what does the word of God do? Because in verses 7 through 11, it talks about several things that the law, that the law of the Lord does. Look at verse 7. It says it converts the soul. What does that have to do with? Well, it has the idea of reviving or restoring the soul. Have you ever gotten to where you feel like you're at the end of your rope? You don't know what to do, and not only do you not know what to do in your mind, but you also don't know if you have the strength to keep going. And the law of the Lord is able to convert the soul. It's able to revive or restore your soul. Have you ever had someone, maybe in the, when you've been in the midst of a turmoil or difficulty, and someone comes to you and just says, hey, I was just thinking about this verse, and I wanted to tell you about it. Can I say Pastor Craig uh, helped me out this week in that? He just mentioned a verse, and it was a phrase, and it was one of those where it was like salve to my soul, and I just took a deep breath, and I went, wow, okay. And it wasn't long. It was just a little nugget of truth, and it converted the soul. What else can it do? It makes the simple wise. Verse 7, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Have you ever, again, wondered what to do? Have you ever maybe made a foolish choice? And you say, man, that was, that was foolish. What, is, what did I do? Well, often when we think about our foolish choices, we, we, we tend to not go to God's word. We tend to do what we think is right. But God's word makes 
wise, even those who would be considered simple. That has the idea of equipping us to be able to do what we need to do. Do you know in God's word you have all of the statutes and all of everything that pertains to life and godliness. God has given to us in the word. So it converts the soul. It makes the simple wise. What else does it do? It rejoices the heart. Verse 8. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Have you ever been around a person that just makes you joyful? It's light. There's not a lot of heaviness when you start hanging around that person. Maybe they have a face or a smile that just lights up the world or lights up the, the room. It brings joy to the heart. Well, God's word is so much more like that. We can look at God's word and it is right and we know what we're supposed to do. And it will rejoice the heart. Are you one that is rejoicing this evening? What else can God's word do? Not only does it convert the soul, make the wise simple, rejoices the heart, but then verse 8, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And this has the idea of, have you ever been where your eyes feel dim, whether it's hunger or sleep, you're you're sleep-deprived, And maybe you got that little bit of sustenance that you needed. Or maybe you got that little bit of rest that you were craving or or desperately felt like you needed. And it was one of those things that enlightened your eyes. It, It helped you to pick yourself up and continue on. Another way you could describe it, have you ever seen, uh, I think of uh, those who maybe have uh, gotten engaged and, you know, you see the, not so much maybe the, the groom-to-be, but the bride-to-be. And when the bride-to-be has that ring on her finger, and, I mean, she's beaming, right? So she has enlightened eyes all the time, right? But then when she starts showing that around, and when the people who love and care for that couple, when they see that, what does it do in their face? Well, it enlightens their eyes. It, it brings out the, the smiles, and it brings out the congratulations, And the law of the Lord, it meets the needs we have for intellectual and emotional stability. It enlightens your eyes. You know, as we are looking at our culture of today, there's not a lot of enlightening that happens with the eyes. Have you noticed? A lot of people will hang their head. A lot of people go through and there's a lot of depression and there's a lot of anxiety. Can I say God's word can be a salve that will enlighten the eyes. That will bring back the freshness to your life. It meets our needs. What else is true? It endures forever. Verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Beloved, this book will be one of those few things that is going to last for eternity. It is forever settled in heaven. God is the one who is in control of it. Oh, yes, we are called to to steward it, and we are called to know it, and we are called to teach it and to preach it, but at the same time, God is the one who owns it, holds it, and will hold it. And this is one of those eternal things that we should invest our time in. And this is one of those eternal things that will last 
when everything else falls away. It is enduring forever. What else, is, what else is, uh, does the, the law of the Lord do? Well, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Again, that idea of truth and righteousness. We can trust in it. We can rest in it. After that little explanation of what the law of the Lord is and what the law of the Lord does, now we get to what the law's value has. And look at verse 10. It says, More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. Can I say verse 10 and verse 11 is now where we start seeing our reaction to God's word. We put a high value on it. You know, I, I, I hate to uh, use as a, a comparison another religion, but there are some religions that will take their holy book and they will not allow it to sit on their lap, will not allow it to sit on the floor. And then I wonder, how do we treat God's word as believers? We have the real word of God in our hands. Do you cherish it? Do you read it? Do you protect it? Do you memorize it? God wrote this for us so that he might reveal himself to us. One way that I've, described, or I've heard the word of God being described is a love letter from God to man. If you've ever gotten a love letter from your special someone, what do you do with it? You open it, you read it, do you throw it away? No, in fact, you probably open it and you reread it. And then you put it in your pocket. And then you pull it back out and you reread it. And here's the thing. I remember when my wife would put just a little bit of maybe uh, some perfume on that. And you could smell. And, I mean, you'd experience all of it. It was like, wow, that's Cheryl. And you could, you could read it and you could think about her. And you could, I could understand what was she was doing. And it was a letter that I would hold on to. And I would cherish it. Because it came from someone that I cared about, because it's someone that I loved. But I wonder, do we treat God's word like that? The other thing is, sometimes we have a thing called technology. We have our phones, and our phones are used a lot. But I wonder, what if we treated God's word like we treated our phones? You know, do we read it? Do we protect it? Do we charge it up? Is it ready to go at a moment's notice? See, God has revealed himself to us, and it is highly valuable. Verse 10, more to be desired are they than gold. That means if you were to compare God's word, if you were to set that on a desk, and then you were to put a pile of gold next to it, the psalmist said that he would reach not for the gold, but for the word of God. It was more desirable. More to be desired than money. More than physical sustenance. I don't know about you, but it's getting close to dinner time for me, and I'm very hungry. But I wonder how often has it been since we have said, I would rather open up God's word right now. I need God's word more than even sustenance. More to be desired than money, more than physical sustenance. It's sweeter than honey, but not only honey, but also the honeycomb. It's about the sweetest thing you can think about. It's God's word. 
Not only that, do you see its value, but you also see its value in the way that it works in us and through us. Verse 11, moreover by them, the words, is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them, there is great reward. So there is some warning, and then there's also great reward. So the revelation of God has been clearly laid out in Psalm chapter 19, verses 1 through 11. And what should our response be? Because the revelation of God, if he is God, and he is, if he is the sovereign of all the universe and your creator, then it demands a response from us as the recipient. You can't not respond to God. He has already declared himself to you. And we have just seen that creation responds by declaring the glory of God. It is a testimony, its testimony is clear. Its presence cries out to the power and majesty of our God. On top of that, if, we, if that were not enough, God has inspired or breathed out for us a written record of his person as well as his transforming work through the scriptures. So if man grasps who God is in all of his glory, what is man's response to him? Can I say, you can't walk away unchanged. The psalmist's response gives us a pattern that we are to follow when we grasp that God has revealed himself to us. We have but a few moments. Let's see what, what the psalmist's reaction is. Verse 12, who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright, and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Man's response after viewing his God is one of humble contrition. Why? Because as you look at who God is in creation, in his word, you can't help but say, I don't measure up to him. The psalmist, first off, is very concerned about his sin. Verse 12. It says, who can understand his errors? It's interesting. Verse 12, there's no real connection to the rest of the verses other than you see who God is. And so in that, when you see verse 12, it was almost like a quick little shift. Well, that is the natural reaction to seeing who God is. You automatically say, oh, man, I don't measure up. Oh, no, I am sinful. Sin being that thing that offends the person and nature of the God we just learned about. So when sinful man gets a view of God, we naturally see our imperfection. Isaiah chapter 6 Isaiah sees God high and lifted up, and what is his reaction? Woe is me, for I am undone. Why? Because he has unclean lips, and he dwells in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He sees sin. He sees the ugliness of our heart. And what at, what at first does he say in verse 12? Who can understand his errors? He desires private, unknown sins to be covered, to be taken care of. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Lord, if there's something in my heart that maybe I don't even notice, Lord, that maybe is so easily, I, I fall to so easily that I don't even notice it anymore. Lord, please take care of that. Cleanse me from those secret faults. He desires private, 
and unknown sins to be covered. But not only that, he does not want to continue in sin. And that's verse 13, the high-handed, presumptuous sin. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Don't let them have dominion over me. Are you keeping, do you, have you ever prayed that prayer? Are you keeping an account like that where it's, Lord, this, I seem to fall every single time with this one particular temptation. Please help me. Keep back thy servant from presumptuous sins. Don't let them have dominion over me. Why? So then shall I be upright and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. He wants to be pure. He wants to be right with his God. And so he doesn't want to continue in sin. He knows that rebellion is seen as foolish before a holy God. So he's concerned about sin. But then, verse 14, he's concerned about being accepted by this God that he's learning about. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. When one takes care of his sins, the next step is, to, is living every part of your life to please the Lord who created you and transformed you. The words of his mouth have the idea of external living where people see and hear actions and the words you use. The meditation of his heart or his soul, that's the internal thoughts and the choices. So he is concerned about sin, but he's also concerned about being accepted by God, being in fellowship with that God. So saved or unsaved, we all need to respond to our God in this way. Contrition and humility and repentance and obedience. Well, for the unsaved, that can only happen as you receive the forgiveness offered through Jesus. For the saved, we obey God's revelation. We maintain fellowship with God. We desire to live lives that are pleasing to him. So in conclusion, we've all heard of foolish criminals, and we almost find the stories so outlandish that we chuckle. Well, I want to tell you a story of one such criminal. His name was James Blankenship. And one day, he decided to rob his mother's home in broad daylight. After arriving at her home, he soon got spooked, and he sought refuge in the crawl space. After hearing a noise, James's mom called the police, and a search was performed, and James was found, he was apprehended, and he was charged with burglary. Now, that all was not very funny, but the funny part was, was that James was completely dumbfounded that he was being arrested for burglary. In fact, he told the police that he thought that since he robbed his mom's house in the daylight, that he couldn't be arrested for burglary simply because burglaries happen at night. Everybody knows that. And so he reasoned that burglaries, because they only happen at night, and since this wasn't nighttime, he didn't think that he could be arrested for robbing his mom's house. So his ignorance did not prevent him from both being arrested and convicted for home invasion and, yes, even burglary. Now, from that story, we may shake our heads and we wonder how James could be so foolish. Burglary, theft, it's all the same. After all, the law was made known. The law was clear, and he had no excuses before it. And this was true of James Blankenship. But before we deride him too bad, what about the countless people that look at God and use ignorance as an excuse to deny God's presence and our accountability to him? 
Sometimes even believers will do all sorts of mental and even theological gymnastics to avoid God's presence and accountability even in their decisions. At the end of the day, though, God exists. He's made himself known to all of us. We are accountable to him. Again, nature makes that clear. His word announces his authority and his power over the affairs of men. These are clear, and no amount of ignorance will be enough to expunge your account before the person and the expectations placed on us by our creator. So you too could claim ignorance. That is an option, but this will get you nowhere. What then should we do? I believe we ought to respond like the psalmist does in Psalm 19. As we saw, he immediately sees his unrighteousness and utter inability. He cries out to God for forgiveness and transformation. In the face of God's revelation to you, how will you respond? Won't you respond today like the psalmist with humble acceptance of God's authority? Maybe some contrite repentance from your sin. Maybe dependence and obedience upon the God who has made himself known to all of us. Would you bow together in prayer with me, please? Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word has been clear. Lord, you have revealed yourself to us. And Lord, if you have revealed yourself, and we noticed and we studied that you have, then Lord, we must respond. And Lord, help us to respond how you would want us to respond. Lord, if there's one here who maybe has yet to accept Christ, Lord, help them to realize that the only response that is acceptable to you is one of trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for their sins to be forgiven. And Lord, if there's one who's listening on, in, to the sound of my voice, maybe on, on, on the live stream or maybe here, Lord, that they would accept Christ. And then, Lord, for those of us who are your children, Lord, you continue to reveal yourself through nature, through your word. Lord, help us to respond to that revelation with praise, honor. Lord, may we, like the stones, may we cry out and may we declare who our God is. Lord, may we take the word of God and may we allow it to change us to be more like our Savior. Lord, would you help us to be humble that, Lord, when your word is open, that we we are quick to say, Lord, what would you have me to do? That we would be obedient as James talks about. And Lord, may you do work in our hearts even now. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.